Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 110, The Livonian Cities. In the monastery of Segeberg, there was a man of worthy life and with venerable grey hair, Meinhard by name, a priest of the Order of St. Augustine. He came to Livonia with a band of merchants simply for the sake of Christ and only to preach. For German merchants, bound together through familiarity with the Livonians, were accustomed to go to Livonia, frequently sailing up the Dugava River. So begins the chronicle of Henry of Livonia, a German missionary who tells about the foundation of the bishopric and city of Riga, the conversion of the pagan population of what is today Latvia and Estonia, and the cruel antics of the Livonian Brotherhood of the Sword. In this episode, we'll touch upon the Livonian Sword Brothers and we take a first glimpse at the Teutonic Knights. But this is the history of the Hanseatic League, and so what we really focus on are the merchants, specifically the merchants from the Society of German Merchants who frequently travel to Gotland, the Gotlandfahrer who we met last week. Because the tale we hear today adds the other important streak to the structure of the Hanseatic League, its willingness to use military force in the pursuit of profits. But before we start, let me tell you that the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Spencer B., James K., Atlas M., and Kate R.S., who've already signed up. When we left the emerging Hanse last week, they had just established themselves on the island of Gotland. They founded the city of Visby and convinced the Gotlanders to take them to Novgorod, the great entrepot of all goods the wide steppes of Eastern Europe could offer. There, they had established a trading compound to buy the beeswax Europe needed to bathe its churches in divine light and the first the fine lords and ladies of the splendid medieval courts craved. And last but not least, Novgorod stood at the end of that vast system of interconnected rivers that allowed the Varangians to travel from Scandinavia to the Black Sea and on to Constantinople. On those same rivers, thick, dark fir tree honey went south and silks and spices came up north. Thanks to the friendship, or the naivety of the Gotlanders, the Lübeck merchant had wrangled themselves into this trade. They brought up cloth from Flanders and Westphalia to the shivering northerners as well as the valuable salt needed to preserve the food for the winter. Getting to Novgorod was, however, a challenge. It involved sailing roughly 800 kilometers or 500 miles from Gotland to Kronstadt, that island of St. Petersburg, where the wares had to be moved to another set of ships. Then they had to go 130 kilometers up the Neva River into the Ladoga Sea, most of that was being under constant threat from raiders. In Ladoga, there's another change of vessel for the last 200-kilometer trip, again upriver, to Novgorod. There had to be a quicker and simpler way. But geographically there is one, absolutely. There is the Dugova, Dvina or Duna river that flows into the Baltic, a mere 400 kilometers or 200 miles east of Gotland. The Dugova is quite a useful river. If you track it upstream you get to Vitebsk, where you have portage links to Smolensk, where one can pick up the Dnieper, down to Kiev and then Kharkiv, the Black Sea and Constantinople. Or you can go further on to Tver, where there's another portage link to Novgorod. And if that wasn't enough, 
From the mouth of the Dogova Duna, you can pick up the land route directly to Novgorod, which may be a long drag, but along an established route. So why are the Gotlanders and their Lubish friends not going there? Well, they were. As our new friend Henry the Livonian said at the very beginning of this podcast, the German merchants were familiar with this route as early as the 1180s. But there was a minor problem with it. The people who lived at the mouth of the Dogova were pagans, and not any pagans, but a Baltic Finnish peoples, the Germans called Letts or Livonians in Latin. The Livonians were however not the only ones living in the area. There were other groups, the Semigallians, the Selonians, the Latgallians, the Curonians, and the Lithuanians, who controlled the large area to the south. All of these groups saw no reason to change their religion or their way of life, or letting the merchants live there permanently. So, when Meinhard of Siegeberg, the German missionary, arrived in 1184, he had an uphill struggle. He settled on the lower Dogava at a place called Ixkli, and surprisingly converted a few locals. But progress was slow. In 1185, the Lithuanians, as was their habit, attacked the Livonians and burned the villages, including Ixkli. Meinhard and the other inhabitants fled into the woods where the missionary came up with an idea how to accelerate the conversion process. If he were to build a modern stone fort to protect the local population, the Livonians would see the superiority of the Christian faith and gratefully join his flock. So, he made a deal. If the Livonians were to convert, he would get some specialists from Gotland who would build them some brand new fortifications. Deal done. A modern fort was rising up in Ixkli. After it had proven its worth in an attack from the Semigallians, the people of the neighbouring village of Holm asked for the same, and again the holy bishop called upon the masons of Gotland to help. Bribery, as it turns out, is not a successful method to instill spiritual devotion. As soon as the last stone was laid, the ungrateful Livonians took a bath in the Dogova, something they believed would wash off the stain of their baptism. Meinhard, now minus a great deal of money and reputation, had to return to the piecemeal missionary approach of one soul at a time. Despite the setback, back home in Germany, the Archbishop of Hamburg-Bremen got very excited about Meinhard's attempt to convert the Livonians. He elevated Meinhard to Bishop of Livonia and the modest churchlet of Ixkli to the rank of cathedral. That elevation did, however, do nothing much to foster Meinhard's efforts. In fact, he kept being taken to the cleaners by the Livonians. This began to irritate the holy man to the point that he made plans with the German merchants who kept coming up the Dogova to trade fur and beeswax. The merchants promised to take Meinhard back to Gotland, where he was to muster an army to forcibly convert the obstinate Livonians. Meinhard, who, spoiler alert, will become Saint Meinhard, followed the other great saint of the time, Bernard of Clairvaux, in the doctrine that cold hard steel is a surefire means to implant the Apostles' Creed. At the last minute, the Livonians, afraid of the military confrontation, convinced Meinhard not to go, promising to get baptised again and become good Christians after all. Meinhard went back to Ixkli, only to find his recent converts splashing about in the Dogova again. That is when he sends one of his monks to go to Rome and ask Pope Celestine III to sanction a crusade against these duplicitous Livonians. Before the answer made it back to Meinhard, he died surrounded by his monks, but only very few parishioners. 
The ball was now in the court of the Archbishop of Hamburg-Bremen. As you may remember from last series, the Archbishops of Hamburg-Bremen have been hankering for a role as the highest church authority in Scandinavia and the Baltic since, well, since there ever was Christianity in Scandinavia and the Baltic. And you will also remember that at every single junction their hopes were dashed. The Pope established an archbishopric in Lund that took charge of all Danish and Swedish and Norwegian churches. Then the Emperor Barbarossa gave his rights over the bishoprics of Oldenburg, Mecklenburg and Ratzeburg to Henry the Lion, who made them effectively his fiefs. This Livonian opportunity really excited the Archbishop, who was at the time our old friend Hartwig, the last of the Counts of Stade. He and his family were the perennial losers of the late 12th century. His elder brothers lost the Mark of Brandenburg to Albrecht the Bear, well, and their lives too. His sister was murdered in her bed by the men of the Bishop of Hildesheim after having previously been ousted as Queen of Denmark. And then Hartwig himself, well, he had tried to give the county of Stade his family inheritance to the See of Bremen, but failed when Henry the Lion effectively stole it from under his nose. Hartwig was a frustrated old man who desperately needed a success. He chose one of his associates, a man called Berthold, to go to Livonia and make it his, or theirs. Berthold is a proactive man, and since the papal patent for a crusade in Livonia had arrived, he could recruit knights, thugs, and anyone able to hold a sword and in dire need of forgiveness. These men promised to go on crusade with him, and that is what they did. Well, that is also all that they were prepared to do. They came along with Berthold, burned, broke, and baptized, but once the time of their penance was up, they got onto the next available ship and sailed home. Berthold would probably have done exactly the same thing had his horse not run away with him straight into the midst of a Livonian army who tore him limb from limb. And a stage left the third bishop of Livonia, sent by Hartwig. This time, Hartwig digs deep into his most precious possessions, the members of his ever-dwindling clan. Albrecht of Buxtehude is the archbishop's nephew, and he is not the kind of man who falls for a Livonian ruse. When he arrived with 500 men and 23 ships, the Livonians promised to get baptized as per standard procedure. But this time, Albrecht does not leave it at that. He invites the leaders of the Livonians to a drinking party. Once they're all seated, he has the doors bolted and tells them that they will not get out until they provide suitable hostages that ensure their future good behavior. Albrecht is then shown a site a bit further downriver from Ixkill that he judges to be a more suitable location for his cathedral city. As it lay along a tributary called the Riga, the city he founded in 1201 is called Riga. Riga was not intended as a city for the Livonians. It was a place for Christian religious institutions and the bishop's allies, the crusaders and the merchants. He moved the seat of the bishopric from Ixkilde to Riga, he founded several monasteries that took their place inside the new settlement and he offered it as a place for German and other merchants to live and trade. Riga became the basis from where the new arrivals conquered what is today the countries of Latvia and Estonia. The timing was pretty much ideal. Emperor Henry VI had died in 1197 in the midst of the preparations for a huge crusade. Now, this crusade is not happening, but vows had been made and many of these armed pilgrims were then diverted to Livonia. And then there was a subsequent civil war between Philip of Swabia and Otto IV that created many opportunities for murder, maiming and the breaking of oaths that required the cleansing powers of a crusade. That provided a steady flow of thugs ready to come fighting. 
and beyond that the merchants from Dortmund, Münster, Soest and Lübeck, to name just a few, knew that there were enormous riches to be made in the trade with the East, and the key to those lay in the mouth of the Dogover. All Albert and Hartwig had to do was to go around Germany once a year and drum up support for the colony in the far north. Riga filled up and many of those who came saw their hopes for wealth and power fulfilled. From this time onwards until 1918, the countries of Latvia and Estonia were split into two social groups, the Latvians and Estonians who spoke their languages and a German-speaking ruling class that controlled the land, the church and the government. The most successful amongst those new arrivals were the members of Albert and Hartwig's extended family. Their brothers, cousins and brothers-in-law swamped the newly conquered country and the dynasties they founded, the Uxkuls, the Tiesenhusen and the Fonderop, played an outsized role in the history of Latvia and Estonia. So, good old Hartwig, after all his ordeals, finally saw some of his ambitions fulfilled at the expense of the inhabitants of a faraway land. One institution that Albert created had become particularly famous, the Livonian Brothers of the Sword. That was a knightly order, like the Templars, the Hospitalis and the Teutonic Knights, though they were specifically designated for the Nordic Crusade in Livonia. Its members were not just noblemen, but they also admitted merchants. Which finally gets us back to the story of the Hanseatic League. What role did they play in all this? Well, a very large one indeed. The 23 ships Albert's first warband arrived on, well, they had been provided by the Society of German Merchants who frequently travelled to Gotland, the Gotlandfahrer we heard about last week. And then there is the question of why the Crusaders headed to the mouth of the Dogover. There was no shortage of pagans along the Baltic coast, so if the purpose of all this had been just to convert pagans, Riga would not have been the obvious destination. The Prussians and Lithuanians were a lot closer and even more fiercely opposed to Christianity in books. The chronicler Henry of Livonia says quite explicitly that it was the merchants who had brought Meinhard of Siegeberg to Livonia. All in, Though other players were important, the crusade into Livonia was at least partly organized and initiated by the Gotlandfahrer, who were looking for a shorter route to Novgorod and to the markets of the east. And this may also be a good moment to talk about the social background of these merchants. Merchants, and what we mean here are long-distance merchants, not local traders. And they came from three different groups. The first were men who had started out as ministerialis, these unfree serfs who received a full knightly or ecclesiastical training to serve their lord as soldiers or administrators. These were quite common amongst the merchant class in the cities and had been seats of bishops or major princes. And it's not a surprise. They were often in charge of markets, tolls, taxes, etc., and hence had both an understanding of and an access to finance. In 12th century Cologne, there was a man called Gerhard Unmars, who became immensely rich as a merchant and banker, financing his lord, the Archbishop of Cologne's wars, against Henry the Lion. The second group were free landowners, who had a base in the city from where they sold their produce and then gradually shifted to trading not just their own, but third-party wares. And finally, there are the people who came from all walks of life, entrepreneurial artisans, the administrators of ecclesiastical or princely manners, and sometimes just men or women who had a small amount of capital and turned it into a large pile by placing their bets right. One thing they all had in common was access to capital. To trade beesmacks and fur with Novgorod, wine with England or grain and fish with Norway required the funds to charter a vessel and fill it with the goods to sell. 
It would then take months to get to the destination, sell the goods, buy others before returning, and then selling those wares. Only then would there be a profit. Hence, in the initial phase of the Hansa, becoming a merchant required some startup capital, something only the ministerialis, the free landowners, and some artisans and some commoners had. Later, there would be financing options that opened the profession up to others who toiled in the counting house of a merchant or trained on the ship of a successful captain. What's also interesting is that until the end of the Middle Ages, these long-distance merchants, once admitted to their city's guild, would not experience much social differentiation with the nobility. Their lifestyles were almost identical. Whether you fight in a king's army or undertake arduous journeys, in both cases military prowess is a crucial part of your life. The luxuries you use and display are also the same. Knights who became merchants did not take a step down in their social ranking, at least not in the 12th and 13th century. Hence, it's no surprise the Livonian brothers of the sword admitted merchants to their ranks, and that merchants from Bremen and Lübeck were instrumental in setting up the Teutonic Knights in Akon. The sword brothers, as they're often called, were never particularly numerous. Estimates are of 80 to 120, though in battle they would weigh in at about 1,000 to 1,500 with all their attendants, squires and infantry support. They were also a bit of a disgrace. They had been given the same statue as the Templars, but their background and general demeanour was a lot rougher. The first master was killed by one of the brothers with an axe, and there was almost no crime these guys had not been accused of. Their military usefulness was also limited since the terrain was not really suited for heavily armoured knights. Where they excelled was in organising crusades, sieges and the building and defending of forts. If the Sword Brothers weren't the secret weapon, what really accounted for the bishop's success was that the local peoples were divided. All these different tribes were regularly at each other's throats, plus the Lithuanian and Russians were a constant threat. Smart diplomacy and inducement provided by the German merchants were ways to gradually wear down the opposition in taking hold of their lands. So in the 25 years following the foundation of Riga, the bishop and his allies, the merchants, the sword brothers and the crusaders subdued the various peoples living along the Dogova and north up into what is now Estonia. The Danish king Valdemar also showed up in the region and Albert and Valdemar agreed on a separation of zones of influence. The Russian prince of Polotsk the nominal overlord of Livonia was forced to accept the changed circumstances. Nevertheless, the situation for the bishop and the sword brothers and the merchants remained fragile. The land was found to be poor and war was expensive. So the brothers tried to fill this gap by first increasing the levies on their serfs, then demanding a bigger share of the spoils from the bishop, and finally by attacking the Danish positions in Estonia. In 1230, they tried to merge with the Teutonic Knights who were based in Prussia, a few hundred miles south on the other side of Lithuania. The Teutonic Knights turned them down, saying that the Sword Brothers were, quote, people who followed their own inclinations and did not keep their rule properly, end quote. So basically, a rough and unruly lot whose reputation was so damaged they tried to use the good name of the Teutonic Knights to get back in the saddle. In 1236, the Sword Brothers suffered a devastating defeat where their master and almost half of the brothers died. The different local peoples immediately revolted and the colony was reduced to Riga and some of the better defended forts and towns. The Sword Brothers were taken over by the Teutonic Knights, the land they had taken from the Danes in Estonia were returned, and the bishop, now Archbishop of Riga, had to grant half of his lands to the Teutonic Knights. That done, 
The Grandmaster Hermann von Salza sent an army and by 1250 the situation had stabilized. The lands south of Riga and along the Dogava were recovered, but again, peace did not hold for long. In 1259 the Samogitians rebelled and again the knights and the bishops were pushed back into their strongholds. This time it took 40 years of fighting before the land was finally subjugated. We'll talk a lot more about the Sword Brothers and the wars in Livonia when we do the series on the Teutonic Knights. What we are interested here are the Hanseatic merchants and their role in all this. Now, the merchants' main interest lay in access to the markets along the Dogova and the land route to Novgorod. On that front, they had their first success in 1212, when the ruler of Polosk is forced to allow German merchants to trade freely along the river as far as Vitebsk and Smolensk. In 1229, the Prince of Smolensk grants wide-ranging privileges to the German merchants, which are reciprocitated for the Russian merchants. There is relief from tolls and taxes, the right to adjudicate their own affairs, and the right to appeal to the court of the prince over the local courts, and various rules about weights and measures, priority treatments at portage and markets, and the obligation to help merchants whose boats have stranded. What is interesting about this document, apart from the fact that 13th century German merchants are opening a trading post in a city halfway between Moscow and Minsk and closer to Odessa than to Berlin, is the list of signatories. There are the Prince of Smolensk, the Bishop of Riga, the Master of the Sword Brothers, but also Regenbode, Detard and Adam, citizens of Gotland, Friedrich Dumom from Lübeck, Henry the Goth and Ilya, both from Soest, Konrad Blödauge and Johann Kienot from Münster, Berneck and Volkmar from Groningen, Arembrecht and Albrecht from Dortmund, Heinrich Zeisig from Bremen, and four citizens of Riga. That list illustrates how the Hanseatic League and the Gotlandfahrer had remained an organization open to traders from across the empire. They worked together and it seems also fought together to open and defend their markets. The contour in Smolensk was however short-lived, which is unsurprising given the political instability in the territory. But once the situation in Livonia stabilized under the Teutonic Knights, trade thrived. Riga became one of the key members of the Hanse. Though the Teutonic Knights did not allow them to adopt Lübeck law and thereby be even more closely associated with the emerging Hanseatic League, they were given Hamburg law, which by agreement between Hamburg and Lübeck was basically identical. And Riga was not the only Hanseatic city in the area. The other important port was called Rival at the time and is today known as Tallinn. Its story is slightly different. The Crusades into Estonia were led by the Danes, and it was the Danes who expanded an existing Estonian settlement and trading station. Then the Danes had to leave in 1227 due to a serious defeat back home and the Livonian brothers moved in. With them came 200 German merchants who quickly settled in the town. Now the Sword brothers did not stay beyond their defeat in 1236, and the Danes returned. But the Hanseatic merchants held on in Tallinn. They convinced the Danish king, Erik Plaupenny, grant them the city laws of Lübeck, and Tallinn quickly gained a high degree of independence from the Danish crown and integration into the Hanseatic League. Now Tallinn is even closer to Novgorod than Riga, and became a key harbour for the trade with fur, beesmax, cloth and salt. Two other places became important. One was Narva, even further along the coast and closer to Novgorod. But despite its attractive geographic position, Narva never really thrived. The citizens of Tallinn did not very much like the competition and cut them off from trade flows and even from participation in the Hanseatic League. 
The other important Hanseatic city in Estonia, and still Estonia's second largest city, is Dopat, Tartu in Estonian. Tartu is deep inland on the road to Novgorod and had been a trading post since at least the 11th century. The Sword Brothers conquered the place in 1224 and made it the seat of the Bishop of Estonia. Dopat Tartu became a member of the Hanseatic League and a rich trading city. Now as the Danish kingdom went through its darkest time in the 14th century, the Teutonic Knights bought Estonia off the King of Denmark and held it until the 16th century. Riga, Rival slash Tallinn and Dorpat slash Tartu played a major role in the Hanseatic League history. The contour of Novgorod, that was so crucial to Lübeck and Visby in the 12th and 13th century, came more and more under the control of these Baltic cities. Within the Hanseatic League, the Livonian cities, together with Visby, formed one of its regional division, its Drittel, or Thirds. And that made sense. The trade with Novgorod and along the Dogova was almost entirely in their control, and hence the cities involved in it formed their own special interest within the League. Another group of cities that may have been part of this Drittel were the Swedish cities, Stockholm, Kalmar and Nyköping. Those and the role of German merchants in Sweden during the Middle Ages will be subject to the next episode, as will be another important trade, the trade in fish. And maybe my pronunciation of Swedish, Norwegian, Estonian and Latvian names will also improve by next episode. And we will finally get to talk about the city of Bergen and the pier that was called Tiskebriggen for centuries and is now called just Briggen. I hope you will join us again. And now, before I go and before I thank all of you who are supporting the show, in particular the patrons who have kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans, let me tell you about my latest plan. I am, like you, a great fan of narrative history podcasts and I do listen to quite a few. What I noticed is that I find them often quite difficult to navigate. It is okay if you are a hardcore fan because then you've listened to all the previous episodes and just wait for the next one to drop. But sometimes I let things slack. And suddenly there are 20 new episodes I've missed. Or I discover a new podcast that is now on episode 177 and I feel a bit intimidated. So my idea is to publish this and all future episodes of this series twice. Once here in the main feed and then a day later in a separate podcast called The Hanseatic League, a podcast by the History of the Germans. So, for you guys who committed listeners to the history of the Germans, nothing changes. You still get your episodes exactly as normal. You will not miss anything on that other feed. And please, if you suddenly come across a separate podcast about the Hanseatic League by your favorite podcaster, do not get angry when it turns out to be almost 100% the same episode you have just listened to. On the other hand, if you know someone who might be interested in the history of the Germans, and more specifically in the Hanseatic League, but may be put off by believing he needs to listen to 108 other episodes first, send him there. And if this turns out to be successful, I may repurpose some of the back catalogue into separate podcast feeds as well. Let's just see. I will explain all this in the show notes and on social media, specifically on Twitter at Germans History and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. Ah, and still a big thank you to all my patrons. Your support is so important to keeping the show on the road. And last but not least, the bibliography. And for this episode, I relied heavily on Philipp Dillinger, Die Hanse, Die Hanse, Lebenswirklichkeit und Mythos, herausgegeben bei Jürgen Bracker, Volker Henn und Rainer Postel, Rolf Hammel-Kiesloh, Die Hanse, Eric Christensen, The Nordic Crusades, 
And since we at it, I came across a really interesting article about the trade in beeswax in the Middle Ages by Dr. Alexandra Sabosnik, titled Bees in Medieval Economy. I've put a link in the transcript that you find on the History of the Germans website. It is a bit niche, it's very geeky, but also very fascinating. 